Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, the mysterious death of a college student home for the summer has her family demanding answers. The young woman was dumped in the middle of the road and left for dead after a party. Police say they have surveillance video of the car and how she was dumped. Police say they are investigating this as a homicide. But first, what kind of a father lines up his children and then shoots them execution style and forces the mother to watch? It is one of the most vicious cases that we have covered in a very long time. We are recording this on Wednesday, June 21st of 2023. Our guest today is Dr. Judy Ho, a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist, professor, author, Dear friend of the show, the voice of reason, Judy, I'm so glad you're with us today. How are you? I'm doing great, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. But so sad about these harrowing cases. And I, I mean, it's just so hard to imagine the predicament and situation. Yeah, this first one, I mean, I know you have a little one, uh, a 15 month old, I believe. Yeah, he's uh, actually 19 months now. So time is flying. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. I know you understand this and look, you don't have to be a parent to understand how horrific and violent a crime this is, one that defies any explanation, even from someone as experienced as you coming up with an answer as to why anyone would do this. I just think it's it's near impossible. So our first case is out of Monroe Township in Ohio, where a father is accused of hunting down his three little boys, seven years or younger making them line up, then shooting them one by one, execution style, until they're dead. Police say that the father has confessed to this, and there is police body cam video that shows the police approaching. I mean, and this is a horrific scene that the police are approaching. You have three dead children. You have an injured mother, wife. Um, she was shot in the hand trying to wrestle the rifle from the father to stop him. She gets injured. And then there's a sister, an older sister who runs screaming away from the scene. So this is what the deputies arrive to see. And the man, the man accused here, Judy, in this video that we're going to show you for those of you who are just listening and can't see it, he's sitting on the porch stoop of his house smoking a cigarette, shoes are off, he's in his socks, the rifle is next to him on the steps, and it's like he's just sitting there waiting for someone to come. What is wrong with him, Judy? That must have been so challenging when the police arrived on the scene to see this after hearing what had happened. Like, wait, is this the same person? Do we have the wrong house? Like, I would imagine that they would maybe feel completely confused at this scene. 
Yes, because it doesn't, what they're seeing and experiencing doesn't fit the level of crime and violence that they see the results of. So the person who stands accused here, and according to police, has already admitted to the crimes, but we'll see because these things change as as, um, trials and cases proceed. We're talking about 32-year-old Chad Dorman. He faces three counts now of aggravated murder for the execution-style killing of his three sons, ages three, four, and seven. Babies, babies, babies. He also shot his wife, as I said. She was trying to protect the children. And so there are two survivors here. There is the wife mother who sadly had to witness this. And then the older sister who ran away screaming. And the fact that she ran away screaming that my father's trying to kill everyone or is killing everyone leads you to believe that she has witnessed this horror. So you have two people who have witnessed this horror in this family. I don't know how they recuperate from this. No, I don't. And I think that this is not only a family level trauma, but it's clearly a community wide trauma because the neighbors, people that were around, I mean, they could hear the shots and they, afterwards they learned what happened. They interacted with this man. This person lives near them, lives next to them. And I don't know how this community can feel safe after something like this, because I'm sure they were shocked by what they heard. Yes. In fact, one of the prosecutors said in court at one of the first appearances that the entire community was in shock, that the first responders and the officers who were working on this case had never seen anything of this level of violence before. You know, there's there's things that happen accidentally. There are things that happen, um, crimes of passion. But when a father who is supposed to be protecting children lines them up execution style, and, and what what I always think about is, those last few seconds of life for every single one of those boys was the most frightening and tortured that could ever be. And for someone like me who believes that the soul is impacted by something like this, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't. Yeah, it's really, really hard to wrap our heads around something like this and what they could have experienced in those last moments. Interestingly, Anna, sometimes as an expert witness, I've been asked to opine about what those last moments for the individual who died a wrongful death could have been like. And obviously there's no way you can know there's individual differences, but the idea is that there is such a significant level of trauma, even though it was in the last minutes to maybe up to an hour of that person's death, that 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 is something that deserves to be looked at because even though that person is no longer with us the kind of suffering that they went through was so significant and so traumatic in those last moments that it didn't only impact those individuals who then sadly were deceased but also just the people who love them trying to wrap their heads around what their loved ones may have experienced in those last moments. That's something that stays with you as a family member and as a loved one that that also then can create a type of post-traumatic stress disorder in the individuals who love and care for these people. Because part of the diagnosis of PTSD includes a definition that it didn't have to be that that happened to you. It could be that it happened to somebody you really love and care about and hearing what they went through. Oh my goodness. Think about all the, the teachers that these three had, the people at church, at the grocery store, their little friends, the parents of their little friends. Oh my gosh. You know, Chad's father, so the children's grandfather, has said that his son just snapped. That's his explanation for all of this. I know that's not a clinical designation, but um, that really contradicts what the police are saying. Prosecutors are saying that this was months in the planning. Now, where they're getting that information from, whether it's that during the alleged confession, the father said he had these thoughts for a while. It, if it was planned, I, I, I don't understand the reason. Right. Snapping, right. Mm, it's, it's not fulfilling. It doesn't, it, it doesn't answer the things that I need answered here, but maybe that makes a little bit more sense. What, what are your thoughts, Judy? 
I mean, I think that it's it's just so odd when you think about the fact that this could have been something that had been planned, that had been brewing for a while. And, you know, I know that we're still just getting more information about this particular case and how it unfolded. But if that was the case, and this was something that was being planned, and people still didn't understand that that was some that was a, the potential outcome of all of this. There must have been some kind of sign. Usually there is, not always, but usually. And if that was the case, perhaps the family members were already starting to feel afraid of their father. You know, maybe there was something going on. We're like, no, dad's not right. He's been saying weird things. He's been he's been acting differently. So then that adds to this level of terror that these family members were having in their own households before this even happened. So feeling kind of like you're on edge all the time, maybe having a bit of a fight or flight for these children, like something's not right, something bad's about to happen, but they're also children. So they wouldn't really know how to identify that. They would just know that they don't feel safe. And I think that even for adults, they may not know how to identify it other than just this person is odd. And, you know, we've heard so many stories, Anna, you've covered stories like this where people just wouldn't believe it, you know, even after the fact, like, no, that that couldn't have happened to this person. This is not the person I know. So I think that sometimes when we see these warning signs, hindsight's always 2020, but in the moment you might think, well, something odd is going on, but you would never think, okay, he's planning to take every single life of the family members that he lived with. You know, that would have never probably came to the consciousness of anybody who knew him. I find it interesting that he didn't kill the mother wife, that he didn't kill her. Yeah. Which makes me think, could he be, well, he's obviously a sick, demented individual. Is it possible that the, that the focus of his fury was to do total damage to his wife? Right. And to make her watch. Yeah. And Anna, you're so right about that because sadly, when people have these kinds of ideas in their head and they're thinking about how they can do the most damage to the person they want to hurt the most, um, usually in a group situation, they don't kill that individual first. They make that individual watch as they kill and torture other people they care about and they want to have them beg and plead and, you know, be shocked and upset and appalled by that. And if that was truly the intention of this man, then that's just so dark. But it's not unprecedented. Sadly, we've seen cases like this before. And there's something, there's some kind of idea that this person may have had in their mind about like, this is exactly how I want to meticulously execute this to impact and to exert the maximal damage on the person that he was trying to do that to the most. I can't imagine you could have done more to her. No, no. He took her babies. Yes. This happened on the afternoon of June 15th. Neighbors say that they heard as many as seven gunshots. The calls to 911 sounded like the gates of hell had just opened. The mother, the mother of the children, calls 911 screaming, saying, quote, her babies had been shot. Mm. Three minutes later, another call comes into 911. This is a witness, a passerby, a neighbor, saying that there is a little girl running for her life and screaming her father is killing everyone. That says everything. That says everything. Imagine the horror that these witnesses experience. Uh, I, I mean, thinking about just this little girl after watching her brothers about to be killed or killed. It sounds like she got away before all of it happened, but she was there when it started to happen. So there's also this really crazy thing about when you run for your life and now what she's processing, a sense of survivor's guilt that can happen for a lot of people. Well, why, why wasn't it me? Why was I spared? Like at the same time, you're so grateful for your life, but then you feel bad because your brothers are no longer there. And what's really sad, Anna, is that kids always think that they could have done something in the situation when clearly they can't. They're children. And also this father, you can't even call him a father, but this person had a lethal weapon 
But a lot of times when I've talked to children who have been through trauma, they always think that they should have done something to save the other individuals there. And I just can't even imagine what was going through her head at this moment. I can't either, that poor innocent child. When deputies arrive, they find this bloody murder scene and the only one who is calm is the father. It's, it's completely counterintuitive to how things should be at a horrific crime scene like this. So we're not going to play that um, video for you that we've been talking about. So again, for those of you listening, this is police body cam video. It shows Chad on the stoop of his home, smoking a cigarette. Looks like that murder weapon, the rifle right next to him. Like I said, he doesn't have his shoes on, but he has his socks on. I don't know what of anything that means, but just so you could see in your mind what's going on here. Here's a clip from Fox 19. Stand up! Stand up now! Stand up! Stand the fuck up! What are you doing, man? Hey, are you copying all this? Can I roll over? I ain't gonna hurt you. I ain't gonna, I ain't gonna hurt nobody. You got anything on you? No, I ain't got nothing, man. Phone, that's it. I'm mad. I ain't, I ain't nothing. Just make sure that dog don't come out. I don't think he'll bite you. Just don't reach for him and try to grab him and pet him. Right. He won't bite you. What's going on, man? Nothing. Uh, can I stand up? It's kind of uncomfortable. I'm going to get I ain't you gonna here do in a I ain't running away. You can do whatever you want with me. You the only one else inside the house? What? You the only one else inside yeah, the house? Yeah, yeah. Sit down right uh, here. My my daughter, she ran over to the fire department. Sit down. Uh, it's my stepdaughter. Put him in the cage. Yeah, yeah. Judy, what I am amazed by is that he turns, the father turns to the deputies after he's been handcuffed and tells them that he is completely sober. In the background, you can hear the mother screaming, he took my life, meaning the children. And when the cop asks the father, who's down on the ground, handcuffed behind his back, what's going on? The father responds, nothing. What is wrong with this man? And then nothing. Oh, and he says to the cops, we'll try and play it for you. He says to the cops, I just want to really reinforce this. He says, can I roll over? I won't hurt you. Really? I'm going to believe you? Wow. Man, this really, I mean, the way that he's speaking about this after the fact and how he's addressing the officers, it really makes me wonder if he was really cognitively there, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why somebody might not be cognitively there. I mean, I know that he's saying he was not intoxicated or on drugs or anything, um, but there could be a lot of other reasons why somebody might not be cognitively um, functioning at a decent level. It could be that he's going through some kind of mental health crisis where his judgment's impacted, his sense of reality is impaired, There's a lot of different things, but how could somebody after shooting your son's execution style just act like it was a normal day when asked what was happening, say nothing. And then even as the officers were arresting him, basically acting like, oh, hey, guys, you know, it's a cool if I roll over. I mean, just the casualness of it all just really makes me wonder about what his cognitive capacity was at that moment. Yeah, definitely disconnected or certainly in his own world because the dog is barking and he's telling the cops, you know, just don't try and pet the dog. The dog won't won't bite you. Three children are dead and all he can think about is 
Yeah, I won't hurt you. Well, what does that mean? It is surreal. I am grateful that there is body cam video that shows us what's going on, because I think that's incredibly important to the rest of us to try and piece this together, because honestly, to describe it is not enough. We need to see his eyes. We need to see his body language, the scene. I, I, I am really grateful that the authorities released this as quickly as they did. And I think it's because the community needs to figure this out. Right. You know, we need to see what condition this man was in. So when the father made his first court appearance, he was wearing a bulletproof vest. He's got this like, it's not that it's a glazed look, but he certainly looks confused. I'm like, I don't know what you're confused about. You're charged with killing three right. children, right. your sons. So, you know, he's completely surrounded in the courtroom. Again, for those of you who are listening, you can't see it. We're now going to play a clip for you from David Gast, who is the chief prosecutor on this case. In an act of just incomprehensible cruelty, the father that stands before you lined up his three young boys and he executed them in his own home with a rifle. They were ages three, four, and seven, Judge. In an act of desperation to save her children, the mother at some point grabbed the gun that father was wielding to attempt to protect them. We know that one of the boys was able to flee into a field near the home. And again, we know from his admission, father hunted that boy down, drug him back to the property, and executed him in front of witnesses. Judy, I believe what he said says it all, especially this detail where, according to authorities, one of the little boys managed to run away and the father ran after him, hunted him down, brought him back, killed him and made sure that there were witnesses to this, meaning his brothers. Right. That's so crazy. It's like, Almost there's an exhibitionist type of uh, angle behind all of this. Like he wanted people to watch. He wanted to impact as many people as possible, as opposed to, okay, I'm going to do this somehow in secret. You know, I mean, we've also had cases like that, right, Anna, where people for different motivations, um, they kill family members and they want to do it. They want to hide it. They don't want other people to watch. This is the opposite. It's like, Come gather around and watch the show. You know, that's a completely different mindset of a person who, again, even if they were going through some kind of psychological crisis, like that's just a different type of execution. You know, a lot of times they're trying to get away with that crime, right? It's like, mm -hmm. they don't want anybody to know about it. They're, they have their own reason. Maybe they believe they're even saving the world. And it's like, I don't want anyone to know I did this. This is completely different. It's like wanting those witnesses, wanting people to see it and, and wanting everyone to know who did it. This is evil. Yes. This is evil. It is intentional. It is evil. Yes. There's, for me, there is no other explanation for it. This, I've never seen anything like this. We've seen a lot on this podcast in the last three and a half years. But this one, this one is at the top. Chad's defense argued that bond should be set at $75,000, but wait a minute. This is, this is what his attorneys said. This is beyond me. Why? Because Chad, Mr. Unhinged, deranged father, what? No, is employed. <laughs> As if wow. that's a grounding factor. Give right. me a break. Wow. Wow. Oh boy. Yeah, sure. You betcha. Let's let this guy out. He's employed. Oh, he had co-signers wait a minute, and that he's married. Really? Because he's married? We think he's not a threat? You don't think that he is a threat to his wife and to his surviving daughter? Oh my gosh. Right. That doesn't... And also, what's going to happen to that marriage now that you've killed, tried to kill all of your living children, but actually succeeded with three out of four? Like, what does that even have to do with anything? I, I Look, I know everyone is entitled to a defense. But making those arguments in public in a court after something like this has happened, right. this is the biggest bull crap I've heard. You could say all sorts of things. You could say we don't 
I don't know, frankly, I don't know what you could say in defense of this man, but those reasons, he's employed, he's married, and has co-signers, give me a break. I think you say nothing. (laughs) You can't get this guy out on any kind of a bond. Are you nuts? That's crazy. I mean, I guess they had to come up with something, but that's pretty weak, no? (laughs) Oh, totally. Well, it was so weak. I'm, I don't know how the judge didn't spit out, you know, the water in his mouth listening to this. Uh, prosecutors asked the judge for a bond of $20 million. This is the highest ever in this small town, county, ever in Ohio. <laughs> and the judge said, you got it, $20 million. This guy's not going anywhere. Good, good. Unbelievable. So, um, and... You know, the voice of reason here, the prosecutor, when he asked for this incredible 20 million, which I know in big cities like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, we hear these really big, big um, figures of setting bail at 20 million. This is unheard of in this area. Uh, The prosecutor said, quote, the trauma that this man has inflicted on his family, community, law enforcement, first responders, and all the rest of us, of us is unspeakable. There has been a full admission in this case. The case is still new. We're still discovering facts. But the evil horror of what we know is impossible to process. Throw that man behind bars. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what the defense is going to, you know, develop um, over time, if they're going to say that he's had a mental health crisis, which, by the way, Anna, I don't I don't love that there's a stigma now that people think that if you're mentally ill, you might kill somebody. I mean, clearly that's not the case. It's a very, very, very small amount of people who have a specific form of mental health condition that might lead to different types of aggravations. And it may not even lead all the way to killing, but it could lead to things like aggressive acts. But that's a very, very small population. However, with these types of stories, that's always the center of it. And sometimes I think it's valid. And other times I'm like, I think the defense is grasping at straws and trying to like find something to make this person sympathetic and to lighten their sentence. And I don't think that always it's being applied in a judicious and truthful way. You know, um, you can sadly, Anna, find probably any expert who maybe for the right amount of money might say things um, to aid the defense. I'm not saying that that's all of the psychology experts out there, but there may be some who will do that. And I just hope that people aren't abusing that part of the system and creating more stigma for people who are actually mentally ill and need help. Absolutely. And look, Judy, I call him evil because in my heart, I I believe him to be so. There's, for me, there is no moral explanation for this. No. Is he also, you know, in layman's terms, not right in the head? Absolutely. There is something absolutely wrong with this man, whether that is a mental illness or whether something happened. I don't know. But this is not normal reaction, normal thinking and problem solving without question. It is just a heinous, violent crime. So, yes, there has to be some mental illness here. But to what degree? I have no idea. And oh, my gosh. And, you know, and maybe (sighs) that the most telling one of the most telling things is when he says to the officers that i am sober there could be something going on there other demons that he's fighting but not to this level because not to this level now back to chad's father the grandfather of the children he spoke to the new york post and he said this was absolutely not planned that his son had snapped again whatever that means and then he adds this is context Hard to figure it out, but I'll share it with you. Quote, there was something going on in his life that he couldn't handle no more. I can't talk to him. They aren't letting me talk to him, so I don't have any answers. He probably hid a lot of stuff from me. Close quote. Wow. So maybe the dad knew that something was going on. He was being tortured by something. We don't know what his demons are. Right. Right. And it's possible that he could have had some kind of psychological break because he couldn't deal with the stress of things. And sadly, Anna, the more people isolate for different reasons, maybe they're thinking they don't want to burden other people. Who knows, right? People isolate when they have troubled times for different reasons. But in this way, if that was happening with this man, there was no way to get him help because nobody really knew what he was dealing with. 
Right. So it's just so sad when we talk about it again, I know it's in hindsight, but it's like, could we have prevented this somehow? Could the people around him tried harder to reach out to him or is that, was that just not possible? You know, I, I don't know, but I, and I don't want to, you know, place blame at all on family member who maybe have been trying, but I, I just do think that sometimes we think, well, this person is not capable of doing something like that. Or I don't know this person to, to have had a mental illness so that maybe they'll never do that. Maybe that will never happen to them, but we just don't know. We don't know what people are dealing with and, and people can have psychological breaks even when they're older, you know, usually something like schizophrenia, for example, it tends to develop earlier in someone's adult life, but people can have psychotic breaks when they're 60 or 70. It does happen, even if it's not as common. And sometimes those psychological breaks from reality is what leads to them thinking, okay, I need to kill people to save them. I mean, there could be all different kinds of ideas that could have been uh, happening in this guy's mind. I have a question for you. It's kind of like a dilemma for me. So here is the father of the alleged killer, who is the grandfather. He has suffered a loss of three children, three grandchildren, excuse me. And his son is now accused of the most horrific thing anyone, like, I don't even know how a parent, how do you, how does a parent parent an adult child who's an accused, at this point, admitted killer, right? who has taken your grandchildren what I don't know how the grandparents manage this case. I know. And I think it's so crazy because as a parent, I can also imagine that the imprint of your child is like that innocent baby that you first connected them, uh, connected with them on is that image of them as a tiny baby. So helpless and like innocent and just, the potential of the world in front of them. And that image and that memory is always going to stick in your mind as a parent. And this is why sometimes parents get into these conflicts with their kids when they become adults and they want to have their own ideas. It's like, what? Like, I remember when you were in diapers, you know, I really don't think that as a parent, you could feel like you were living in reality. You know, I I think that there must be a part of Keith that feels like he's maybe a little bit in denial or in some kind of alternate universe. Like, this could not have happened to my family and to my baby. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how I would process that. No. Well, Chad Dorman's preliminary hearing is slated for June 26. A GoFundMe has been created by the boy's aunt titled Help My Sister Bury Her Children. It's raised over $200,000. At the very least, those children will have a burial, but they should never have been buried in the first place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next case is out of Southfield, Michigan, and one of our regular viewers on YouTube with the handle Sugar Plum asked us to cover this case. And so we are, and it would have been on our radar anyway, but thank you very much, Sugar Plum, for always, I love how interactive you all are when you want to know more of a case or you want to have a discussion about it. We can only cover two a week, so we're, there's sadly more crimes and murders than we can ever cover on this Uh, podcast. So we're talking about the suspicious death of 23-year-old Mia Canoe. She was found dying in the middle of the road. Police later found surveillance of a car that either dumped her or she fell out. But however it is she ended up in the middle of the road, she should have never ended up there under any circumstances. Mia later died. 
Now, Mia was a senior at Tennessee State University where she was studying to be a veterinarian. She also worked as a local vet tech at a local clinic near the university. Mia was home for the summer in Southfield, which isn't far from De- Detroit. Happens all the time. Every, you know, the, all the kids come home from college unless they can sustain themselves in this you know city where they're attending university. And, you know, as a parent of an adult child who has recently, you know, last two years graduated university, those those moments that that coming home from college, you're like, you know, you're so excited to see them. You've missed them. They're growing. They're changing. Your relationship is changing. You're having a more adult connection with them. So I can just imagine how joyous it was that she was home for the summer, you know? Yes, yes. Oh. oh, it breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. So Mia wanted to be a little bit more on Mia, and then we'll get into the crime, because it, it just goes to the kindness of this young woman as a human being. Mia wanted to be a veterinarian for zoo animals, and she had volunteered at farms nearby the university, and everyone at the animal hospital where she worked as the vet tech said that she loved every animal that she cared for. She Mm. knew their names, she knew their personalities, and for those of us, you know, who have fur babies that have to go to hospitals, we know who really loves the animals, and we know when we hand them over that they're going to be okay because they're being so loved by the person carrying them, and this was Mia. This was Mia, the person that you want you know, standing there as you're crying because your your dog or your cat is in crisis or your bird. So here's why she's so amazing. So she didn't want to leave her job for summer break, but she had to because, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you have to have a place to live. You got to be able to pay the rent, you know, tuition or all that. St- not the tuition, but the room and board. And so she was such a hard worker. She gave her two weeks notice, but there were two days left over where she didn't have a place to live. So she lived in her car to work out her last two days at the clinic. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That's who a Mia responsible was. young woman. Like that's crazy. That's awesome. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. This is a young woman who has respect and regard for responsibility for life to do the right thing. And for her life to have ended in the way it has with a complete disregard for her life. And what if she could have been saved before she was dumped in the middle of the road? No. That's why this is a crime. This is a, this is a crime. It is a moral crime. It is, of course, a crime. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Let's get into the case here. So according to Mia's mother, Bianca Van Meter, Mia was staying with her, her mom, and her sister during the summer break. Mia was working at a local restaurant, the Green Lantern, as her summer job. You know, this beautiful young woman had everything ahead of her. Everything. Her entire life. Everything. Her mother, Bianca, says that the last time she saw Mia alive was on June 2nd before Mia went to work. When her shift ended at the restaurant, Mia was picked up by a friend, and then they headed to a party. What happened next is unclear, Judy. We really don't know. There are various reports. I also believe that police are limiting the information, whatever they need to do, to make sure that they investigate this and get who's ever responsible. Yes. But we do know that early on the morning of June 3rd, so the party would have been June 2nd that night, goes to work, goes to the party, and then early morning, about 4.30 a.m., Mia is found clinging to life on the side of the road. Well, actually, in the middle of the road. She was discovered by someone passing by who called 911. That person did more than the people that were in that car that either dumped her, pushed her, or let her fall out. And the only way she could have fallen out of the car is if someone opened the car door. Right. Oh, my God. She couldn't just do it herself. Right. The fact that there is surveillance video of this is both a blessing and, honestly, I can't even imagine if that, I hope that mother never has to view view that video. I know. I mean, I feel like as a family member, you wouldn't want to see it. No. No, no. And there is absolutely zero, zero excuse for having left her there. (sighs) If this woman, if Mia knows well enough 
that she has two days left. She has made a promise to her employer to finish out her shifts. And she knows that that's the right thing to do. How is it possible that the two people supposedly in that car, according to police, didn't know the right thing to do? How is that possible? How is that possible? No excuse. Zero. None. Zero. Zero, zero, zero. I don't care how scared you are. Zero. Nope. So... She was left near the coach apartments. Apparently, that's where the party was on Providence Drive. Police say that there was a man and a woman also in the car. And police say neither one of them called 911 for help. Wow. That they didn't even, after leaving her there, didn't even call for help. Which I wouldn't have liked, but would have been better. Right, right. So here is Mia's mother talking to Inside Edition. It's just really hard for me to understand why someone would just leave her. So Judy, that's it. What is, there are many questions that the mother has, but at the core is why would anyone leave her there? It's almost as if we are more obsessed with why and how someone could do this And then secondary is what happened to her. Now, I know primary is what happened to Mia, but honestly, it's the fact that someone did this part of it that we can't, we, we can't understand. Right. And Mia's not the kind of person who seemed like she was having beef with anyone, like this like conflict, you know, with other people. I mean, we don't have any information about that. No, all we know is, and and again, this has been reported and by the police as well, that there was an argument at the party, but we don't know whether Mia was involved in the party, excuse me, in the argument, whether the people she went to the party with were in the argument. And and then we're being told by the mother that Mia got back in the car with these acquaintances And police have said they believe that the vehicle that picked up Mia from the restaurant is the same vehicle that dumped Mia or left Mia for dead. So there's a little continuity there, but we don't know the details of this. So, but I don't, no one describes Mia as, you know, someone getting into bar fights. This is not Mia. Right, right. I mean, this is not the profile at all that has been painted about Mia in terms of the available information. She's only very responsible, had great goals in her life, was a compassionate human being. I mean, all they know, I guess, is that she has some kind of severe head trauma, Mm -hmm. but they don't know how she experienced that head trauma. What happened to her for that to happen, right? There's still no information about that. No, they haven't released anything and we don't know whether that head trauma had happened prior to her falling out of the car and then hitting her head on the cement, or whether that just was another uh, blow to the back of the head. We don't know that. And apparently there has been an autopsy, but authorities have not released any of the information as far as manner of death or what the injuries were and circumstances, because they're still trying to piece this together. And it's you know, when a crime like this happens, because it's a crime, I, you know, yes. even if it was, here's the thing, even if she fell as a result of an accident or right. she was pushed or anything like that, what you do afterwards is what changes things and, and may exactly. very well make it into a crime. Exactly. Exactly. So if it was accidental and maybe the people she was with who were responsible for that accident, like they were trying not to get in trouble and that's what they did. I mean, first of all, what a crazy disregard for human life. You're just trying to avoid getting into trouble. But accidents are not uh, adjudicated in the same way as an intentional act. And so what had turned into something that was much more nefarious like, this is what we're looking at possibly now. And instead of just an innocent accident, whoops, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to college days, you know, people go to parties, accidents happen. You're a young adult. Maybe you're not doing the most responsible thing, but most of the time people do not get prosecuted for that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, come on, as teenagers, I mean, you're a little, she's older now, she's in college, but you know, when you think of high school kids, they're always constantly covering for one another, especially when it's like, if one's gotten inebriated, you know, the others are like, oh no, nothing happened. Everything's fine. You know, because 
But there's a big difference between how a 14-year-old might handle a situation and, right. a, and, and people in their 20s, I would like to think. Also, circumstances here are incredibly serious because if she's incapacitated, you can't just leave her there. Right. You know, it's not like she walked out on her own. Nope. And fell in the middle of the road. That's not what happened here. No. That is not what happened here. And I am so grateful to the police department that is investigating this because, you know, protocol for law enforcement, standard protocol is you treat every single death as a homicide to begin with, and you work your way back from it. And you have to do right. your due diligence. And we've seen so many times in cases here where evidence is lost in the first 24, 48 hours because police just assume, oh, it was a suicide, or it was a this, right. it was an accident, right. didn't use the protocol of homicide and work your way back, and therefore trampled, trampled yes. through through evidence. So right. I, I am, I'm I'm pleased that the police department is taking this so seriously as a homicide. Yes. And yes. again, we we don't know we don't know exactly what happened. And the thing about this case why it's so tragic is because two things were going on at the same time. You're right. dealing with a young woman who's now in intensive care and on life support as a result of this. Like she when they picked her up, she was near death or maybe already her brain activity was dead because she never, she was on life support and brain dead for days. Right. Meanwhile, they're still trying to investigate what happened while family is consumed with, will Mia survive? Will Mia not survive? Well, Mia did not survive. Oh my goodness. So she had no brain activity for days and the family decided to move life support and donate her organs. The saddest, yet I believe one of the most beautiful moments I have seen was when the doctors and the nurses surrounded Mia's hospital bed down the hallway, mm -hmm. decorated her bed just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mia's being wheeled into the operating room for the end of her life and to harvest her organs. It's really sad when you think about the fact that she just had her whole life ahead of her. And clearly she made an impact on people, the way that they're trying to memorialize her life and celebrate her life. But it's always so sad when we hear about someone who, it just seems like they were just such an innocent victim that got caught up in something and they had so much more life to live, you know? It just so feels- much like such a sad um, waste of amazing potential and all the good she probably could have done. Um, yeah. She grew up. Yeah. And of course, even in her death, yes. Mia continued to give. Mia's mother told several news organizations that after her death, Mia's liver went to a baby. Mm -hmm. Her kidneys went to another recipient. And her tissues and her muscles were donated to the gift of life. Amazing. Even in her death, she's a giving human being. Right. Ooh, I'm so angry at those people who left her. I know. I know. And God knows what was going on in their mind. Like, what were they thinking to do that? You know? Yeah. I can't, well, I can't wrap my head around it. Like what kind of crazy excuse could they have had to do what they did? There isn't one. There just isn't. Oh. Other than they were scared, but still, that's a really bad decision. No. So of course, yeah. Mia's mother has been extremely critical of the friends. We can't even call them friends. That's not a friend who left her daughter no. to die. And according to statements that Bianca, the mom, has made, um, it, it just... She cannot wrap her head around the fact that no one called 911 to help her daughter and right. that she just says it speaks volumes about these the people who left her. Meanwhile, police say that they have interviewed the two people who were supposedly in the car and that they are cooperating hmm. and no information on the autopsy yet and obviously so far, no charges have been filed against anyone. And we don't know the details. We don't know the details of what's happened. But Mia's family does plan to host a celebration of life for her on the 23rd. 
I hope they get answers. Yeah, I hope so too. And hopefully you guys are going to follow this story and see what you guys find because like, what a, what a sad mystery. Well, Judy, thank you so much for your insight into everything. I can't tell you how many times I do a podcast and I either say out loud or I think to myself, oh my gosh, if I could just call Judy right now to ask her her opinion on this case, because what you provide and the context you provide is so different from from what so many of our other guests do. And um, because even if we, we understand what the law is, even if we understand protocols and evidence, we're always left with the same answer always at the end. Why, 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 why? Yeah. why? So Judy, I know you do a million things. What, any projects that you're working on? Yeah, I'm actually working on finishing up my next book, which is called The New Rules of Attachment. It's being published by Hachette Book Group, and it's going to be released February of next year. So I'm very excited. We're uh, just finalizing the manuscript right now. How exciting. How many books have you written, Judy? Uh, this will be my second solo book. Um, I had a co-authored book uh, right before I delivered my baby. <laughs> so yeah, so this will be my second solo book. I'm really, really excited about it. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, um, for those of you who uh, don't follow Judy, you really should follow Judy on Instagram because First of all, it's delightful. Not only are there, you know, the hints when you bring out your little whiteboard or your little, you know, graphics that you do, but then sometimes you're singing and you're playing the piano. And for those of you who don't know Judy as a regular, Judy also like isn't a cosplay. You're like the most fascinating, brilliant, gorgeous woman I have ever met in my life. And then, of course, your sister is a professional poker player who is equally as gorgeous as you are. Oh, thank you. It's it's wild. Like what we basically chose both to go into is some dimension of psychology, actually, because obviously when she plays poker, there's a lot of psychology involved in that. You two are like these incredibly badass women. <laughs> thank you. Oh, my gosh, Anna. Same to you. It's so great to be your friend and to be able to work with you. And uh, I always so appreciate your support of my work. Oh, my goodness. And you're always always a phone call away. And there have been times I've had to call Judy as a lifeline. And I am always <laughs> appreciative for that, Judy. I really am. So where can people find you um, and follow you for all the wonderful things you do? Well, thank you. So you can follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. My main platform is Instagram, but I also have an account um, on Facebook that you can follow um, for the latest updates about me. Or you can get re free resources and learn more about my work at drjudyho.com. Excellent. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Uh, this episode and all our episodes of our podcast are available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. We always, we also have this newsletter, which always baffles me. <laughs> I always say, I don't understand the newsletter, <laughs> but, but you can subscribe to get one. <laughs> so um, thank you, everyone. Um, I'm Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime.